0: hello and welcome to the borders of equality podcast this is a podcast made at leiden university when we talk about immigration the welfare state inequality and redistribution we'll be covering things like welfare tourism welfare chauvinism and other isms that connect immigration and political economies around the world this podcast is made possible by leiden university and the dutch science foundation i'm Oxbonde and i'm here with emily wolf samir Nagash, and alex afonso Today we are talking about welfare tourism. Does it exist? Do people move around borders to take advantage of the welfare state in countries where benefits are more generous? This has been a highly contested issue within the European Union. Free movement makes it possible to move and work across the EU, while EU countries have wildly different welfare systems. Some people have been saying that benefits should be cut and access to benefits should be made more difficult for citizens of other countries. This was part of David Cameron's botched strategy to secure a yes in the Brexit referendum. Our welfare system, in a way, it should be like a national club. It's made up of the contribution of hard-working British taxpayers. Millions of people doing the right thing, paying into the system, generation after generation. It cannot be right that migrants can turn up and claim full rights to this club straight away. But what kind of evidence is there for the idea that people will move to countries where benefits are more generous? To talk about this, we have Dr. Petra de Jong on the show, who recently defended her doctoral dissertation at the University of Groningen on the role of welfare systems in migration decisions. Welcome on the show.
1: So hi, Petra. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. So, so the hypothesis that you engage with in your thesis is the... Um, hypothesis called the welfare magnet hypothesis. So that's the idea, basically, that people will go to countries where the welfare system is more generous, and that will be a primary uh, driver of migration decisions. So, so just going a little bit back in time, before you started your dissertation, what kind of evidence was, it, was there out there supporting this kind of hypothesis?
2: Yes, thank you. Very good question, of course. It's always good to ask yourself why you're doing a certain research. And indeed, in political and and uh, public discourses, this idea of the welfare state as a reason for people to move to certain places uh, is something that we observe uh, more and more these days. But it's definitely also something that we, uh, that we encounter in scientific literature. And this is also where this term, the welfare uh, magnet hypothesis, comes from. Uh, And it's just the idea of, yeah, it evolves from an economic tradition in which um, uh, migration decisions are explained from a cost-benefit analysis, uh, which expects people to make a kind of a a list, a a calculation of costs of migration and the benefits. And the welfare state is then perceived as one of the benefits, something that increases household income. And for that reason, these economists expect that people will move towards the places with the highest uh, welfare benefits. And it has been tested before in different contexts. Uh, On the one hand, in the United States, uh, how people move between the different states of America, uh, but later on also in the international context to see whether people really move to certain destinations when they move internationally. And the the findings of these studies are really, really mixed. So some uh, studies indeed find that more people are moving towards places that spend more on the welfare state than others whereas others do not find such an impact. And when such an impact is found, it's also very, uh, very modest.
1: So you said that the research that has been conducted so far, um, especially uh, in, in, in economics, was uh, focused on, on the United States. So that's often the case where you have some broad hypothesis that is tested in the U.S. context, for instance, you know on the minimum wage. So uh, how difficult it is to try to transpose this kind of questions from the U.S. context and take it to... Uh, the EU, in, in the European context.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's one of the points that may explain why these findings from international studies are so mixed, because it's a very different context. Uh, within the United States, people are still moving within one federal state, so there are not actually international migrants. And although they, there may be very large differences between the states, uh, yeah, they're still uh, moving within one country, you could say. Uh, But in an international migration context, people are really crossing borders and therefore entering a completely different welfare state, which has a different organization, different types of benefits. So it's much more difficult to compare the different uh, benefit levels uh, and the different organization types that they will encounter there. But maybe even more problematic is that people that move internationally uh, are not always freely to choose where they will go. Um, Migration policies may prevent them from entering the most generous welfare states. And this may in fact explain why many previous studies didn't find uh, support for this welfare magnet hypothesis. And it's also one of the reasons why in my research project, in my PhD, I really decided to focus on uh, the European context because within the EU, people are free to move uh, between the different member states.
1: And going back again to, to the difference between the US and the EU, I would assume that... Even if you are a Mexican migrant going to Idaho or to Iowa or to New York, uh, the choice and the cost of moving from one place to the other are also lower than moving from, let's say, <laughs> Sweden to Italy or to Spain, because you, all these differences in cultures, in language, you don't really have them in the US. So the cost of migration, I would assume, are also a bit higher in the, in the mm-hmm. European context.
2: Yeah, exactly
3: easier to transition to jobs in uh, different states because you probably don't need to learn a new language and uh, your uh, degrees are probably also uh, acknowledged or uh, valid in different countries if you move to a, uh, a state in the same country.
2: Yeah, exactly. So there are many different reasons why you cannot really simply compare interstate mobility within the United States with interstate mobility within the EU. The states really represent something else in the EU. they are still different countries with very different yeah, contextual factors.
1: I would also assume that, so this is a very tricky question to investigate empirically because you've got a lot of different levels, you've got different countries, you've got different types of migrants. So how, how did you go about trying to assess whether the welfare state is a significant factor in migration decisions? Well, what kind of data did you use? What kind of methods did you... Uh, did you did you go about using to to investigate this question?
3: Yeah,
2: you really rightfully pointed out that it's a very tricky issue and that's also what I uh, discovered when diving a bit more into this literature. Um, one of the main complications is that the different welfare states of the European Union are so different in terms of the way they organize welfare that you cannot simply compare benefit levels as is often done in the United States uh, because uh, a benefit that exists in the Netherlands may not even exist in another country, for instance. So you cannot simply look at benefit levels when comparing which welfare state is the most generous. Um, the solution that previous research has found for this is looking at the amount of money a government spends on the welfare state, and they take that as a yeah as an indicator of the generosity of this welfare state. But it's, of course, it's far from ideal, because uh, a country could spend... Uh, more on the welfare state, but uh, only in a certain domain. For instance, they could spend a lot on pensions, but nothing on uh, families or unemployment benefits. Another problem is that how much money a government spends uh, also uh, depends on the population. So if a population uh, is somewhat older in structure, uh, the share of money spent on old age benefits is also much higher, but it doesn't necessarily mean that old age pensions are more generous. So there are several problems with this type of measure. Uh, And another problem with this relation is that the welfare state is a macro-level factor. It is a a macro-level concept, you could say. um, Quite abstract, so we don't know exactly how people perceive it. Whereas migration decision is something made at the individual level. And when we try to study this link at the macro level, yeah, the macro level of analysis, it is very tricky to to really determine how individuals actually perceive the welfare system and whether a relation that you find between this government spending and the amount of uh, people that move towards this country is actually because these individuals thought that the welfare state looked attractive
1: because we talked before about the, these um studies uh, especially in the us context that have that, that uses quite you know sometimes stereotypical um cost benefit analysis where actors have got a reasonably good level of information about what the costs and benefits and what kind of the what kind of benefits they could they could benefit from in different states is that actually what is that actually what's going on in the minds of migrants are people actually informed about different levels of generosity across countries, for instance.
2: Yeah, so this was one of the main questions, actually, to answer in the PhD. Uh, And I uh, tried to do so using qualitative interviews with uh, European migrants living in the Netherlands, uh, people from Spain, uh, Poland and the UK. And I spoke with people in different phases of their life and... Uh, men and women, different educational backgrounds, to really figure out how they perceived the welfare system and whether they really knew about certain welfare arrangements before they they moved to the Netherlands and whether it played a role in their migration decision. Um, In these interviews, it really came across that they did not really look into the welfare state before they they moved here. So they, they were often young and single and healthy and happy when they moved and they didn't really use any type of welfare at that time. So they were not really interested in it. They looked at different factors and decided then to go to the Netherlands. Uh, And only after living for a while in the Netherlands, they uh, sometimes found out things about the Dutch welfare system. Simply because they uh, became in need of something or because they heard co-workers talking about it. And only in this way, they got more informed about the welfare states. But it was not as if they were at home planning their migration and then looking into the different elements of the Dutch welfare
1: states. Something that's always struck me in these, you know, is this whole discourse about welfare tourism, it, it assumes this very high level of information in the minds of potential migrants that even citizens of, of the countries uh, don't really have. I, I would assume that most people... Are not really very much aware of how, what the amount of benefits they can receive in different welfare schemes in their own country. So, how would you assume that people from other countries might know all these differences and might be able to compare in a, in this kind of rational way that that economic models actually produce?
2: Yeah, it's very very good points. We also interviewed people from the Netherlands themselves to ask what they thought about the welfare state. And this is indeed something that uh, that was very clear, that especially young people from the Netherlands, they also didn't know how their pension would look like and how certain family benefits would be organized or unemployment benefits. Uh, it's often only when people become in need of, of certain arrangements, they start to, to look into it and to find out more.
4: So if... Uh if cost-benefit analysis in sort of a very calculated, measured fashion did not characterize the decision for the interviewees that you spoke to, how, how could we characterize their decision? What, what, kind of, what was driving their decision to move? Very different reasons.
2: Uh, it became clear that the drivers for migration are very diverse. So some people really had economic motives. Uh, especially uh, after the economic crisis, for instance, we saw a large peak in the number of Spanish migrants uh, who moved uh, at very young ages. And in the interviews you also could see this. So people that really uh, moved to, to look for better economic conditions in the Netherlands. Uh, but also people that moved, for, for instance, for a partner uh, or just because they thought it was a nice adventure uh, or a combination even.
3: Yeah, well, now that you mentioned Spain, for example, I remember that around the time the Spanish government also cut funding to universities, which also provided an impetus for a lot of Spanish nationals to study uh, in other EU countries. Because if you're paying that much for education, you might as well get it at a better or a mer- uh, more reputable university as well. And there's probably also going to be more jobs available in the members state you move to then.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Student migration is also something that we can see in the migration statistics to the Netherlands, also from Germany, for instance, probably for the same reason, that it's uh, cheaper to study here.
4: Something that I think your research pointed out, which was really interesting, is the effect of the conditions in the origin countries then. And I guess Samir has kind of touched on this, but to, to what extent did you find that it mattered how things were going in the countries where migrants were from?
2: yeah that matters a lot. The origin country is actually very important because it it yeah, it provides the context in which the first migration decision is made. So if people are coming from an economic uh, developed country, they have very different expectations when they move abroad from uh, people who move from a country where things are less well organized or where, and there are less economic opportunities for them. At the moment, I'm, for instance, working on a comparative study on the Netherlands and Portugal, and I'm comparing the factors that are important for uh, master students when they decide whether they will move after completing their study. And it's very striking that people from Portugal are really much more interested in the economic factors like wage, job opportunities, uh, living costs, whereas the Dutch students look f- much more at culture and climate, for instance, but also distance to the home country. So it seems more lifestyle migration than uh, migration out of need for economic um, prospects.
3: Yeah, and if they might not be making hard calculations about the cost benefits, they might uh, know vaguely that some countries have developed welfare states and you don't need to know specifically that oh they spend this much on pensions and uh, i might be eligible for that when i move there but you could know that oh sweden probably has a generous welfare state
4: it sounds like something else that really strikes me about this welfare magnet hypothesis is that a lot of times Aren't migrants coming, especially um, maybe not from a country like the Netherlands, but you were you were mentioning Portuguese migrants who were looking for certain wages or something. A lot of times people are coming to work. I mean, labor migration is the phenomenon that we seem to be interested in. So this idea of welfare tourism seems to run counter to how I understand the, or sort of what I understand the function of migration to be, right? Because if you're working, then you'll be more of a contributor than you will be a beneficiary, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is also something that always struck me as a bit strange, that on the one hand, we uh, see a discourse in public uh, and political debates that um, migrants are here and take the jobs of the natives. And on the other hand, we uh, fear that they will live a life on welfare. So it is a bit that they can never do it right, I think.
1: The Schrodinger immigrant problem.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it will never be okay. They will always have. (laughs) one or the other problem to deal with but yeah i agree with you M- mainly the people that i spoke with but also based on macro level analysis that i conducted um it seems most important that people uh, find better job opportunities not just better wages but also better opportunities to de- develop themselves and their careers uh, this is a, a main motivator for for many migrants
1: if I wanted to, let's say the, the main message from, from from your thesis. So in the introduction that, that Darrow made, we can see that this idea of welfare tourism is something that is really quite prominent both, I think, in political discourse where you hear prominent politicians saying that welfare benefits should be uh, restricted for newly arrived immigrants. It's also, I think, an idea that is probably quite widely believed in the population. If you look at public opinion data about what people think about how much immigrants receive and how much they pay, a majority of people in most countries think that immigrants receive more than what they pay. So based on your evidence, is welfare tourism really a risk? Or, or is it something that is really overblown? Or, or is there any evidence of ways where the generosity of welfare might drive certain types of immigration flows?
2: Yeah, in the, one of my quantitative studies, I really looked at the, the bigger picture and to see where people move to, from which countries they come and where they move to and which factors seem most important in deciding where to move. Uh, And in this study, I actually used this government spending measure again, also because we do not have uh, much alternatives. But instead of looking at total social expenditure, I looked at uh, spending of the government in certain areas. So I looked at how much they spend on family benefits, on old age benefits and on unemployment benefits. Uh, And I distinguished within the migration flows between 25 European countries, people in different ages. So I looked at... Um, yeah, people moving together with their children but also people moving uh, later in life uh, and in this study I, um, I found that uh, people that move with together with their children are more often moving towards countries that spend more on family benefits and um, older migrants are more often moving towards countries that spend more on all uh, age benefits so, yeah you could see this as proof as an attracting effects of these welfare programs for these specific groups. Uh, with the people that moved in working age, we saw that they were not uh, moving more often towards places that spend more on, on unemployment benefits. Uh, and more generally, they didn't like seem to like the countries that spend more on the welfare state in general. And although this seems a bit counterintuitive, it isn't that strange, because countries that spend a lot on unemployment benefits are probably countries with a large share of unemployed people. And therefore, it is very important to, for each of these measures, ask yourself, what does this measure tell us about country uh, context? Uh, and in the case of unemployment benefits, this probably means that there is a lot of cost of unemployed people, which makes it less attractive for workers. Uh, whereas countries that spend more on family benefits or on the age benefits seem to have more favorable policies for these specific demographic groups. And this could actually be attractive for these uh, people in, that move in these life stages.
4: But how do we reconcile that with what we've learned about how micro-level decisions are made? So we can't necessarily assume that that, that migrants are aware of those benefits that are in place, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, exactly. So the
2: to, to speak about it in the order of the research, this was one of the first studies that I conducted, uh, in which I tried to uncover the broader patterns that we can observe within Europe, and there I discovered this pattern, and I was asking exactly this question that you ask me now. Like, can we really explain this uh, from a macro level uh, perspective? Are people really looking at how much the government spends on certain uh, arrangements? Uh, And that's why I, in the second part of the thesis, really looked more at the individual level, using qualitative data, but also an experimental design. And here, I in this qualitative part, I could see why it doesn't seem why it isn't such a strange finding as it appears uh, at first. So people uh, moving in the younger ages indeed are not so much interested in the uh, welfare state aspect, and they are also not really looking into it that much prior to migration. But people that move in somewhat more fragile stages of life, for instance, when they ha- still have young children or when they are close to retirement age, are actually more aware of yeah, their fragile position and certainly do look more into specific programs that could help them uh, accommodate in the, in the destination country. However, it, I would s- still say that we may not speak about this as uh, welfare migration, Because it doesn't mean necessarily that the family benefits or the old age benefits for these people are the the main reason to move. So you cannot live on a family benefit, for instance. It is not enough. So you still would need a job to pay your bills. But it is, of course, something that can help you and your family to accommodate in the destination country. And this makes it very different from the prominent idea of welfare migration. As people really moving for the welfare state and then just living on a welfare benefit and not doing anything else
3: so all else being equal uh, if you have the choice if you have a a family with a kid and you can choose between a country with similar economic conditions you'll choose the country with uh, family benefits or higher family benefit spending
2: yes exactly
3: so you've touched on this a bit already uh, but what makes uh, intra-eu migration so interesting Uh, there's already been some research on uh, uh, this supposed welfare tourism or benefits tourism in the u.s are the drivers of uh, uh, migration in the EU different than in the US or um, do you find those to be equivalent or different
2: yeah I think the main difference is um, the yeah what, what we talked about before actually the the difference in a move but within a larger federal state or really between uh, international across international borders, uh, and this makes it a very different type of migration decision, I would say. You encounter very different context after migration when you actually cross an international border in terms of culture and language and different system that you have to get used to. So I would say this is a main difference. And uh, another important difference, of course, is that in the United States there is not that much of a welfare state. Uh, there are certain welfare arrangements for the very poor mainly social assistance for certain very poor groups, and only until they can make it on their own again. Whereas the European welfare state is is very different in this respect. Uh, European welfare states actually assume that every individual, at some point in his or her life, will make use of it. And it is really um, yeah, organized that way also. So at the moment, I'm still young, I don't have children, I have a job, and I'm healthy. My pension seems ages away, so I don't make use of the welfare state at this point. But I'm still contributing every month to my uh, insurance in case I would lose my job and in case I will ever reach the pension age, <laughs> which seems far more far than ever. Um, so the European welfare state really assumes that people at some point in their life will make use of welfare arrangements, uh, and in different life stages, this uh, yeah this relation with the welfare state will be different. In this life stage, I contribute more, and at some other points, I probably will receive more than I put in.
4: Something else maybe that makes the EU uh, really interesting is the process of integration, which has kind of forced countries um, to include migrants in in the welfare state, where I'm, I'm not sure how that would work ac- across states in the United States, whether um, the programs are mainly federal or mainly state administered, I think it depends on the program. But here in the EU, do you think that the process of integration has affected uh, countries' expenditure on welfare or the nature of the programs? Have, have they implemented any changes in order to prevent migrants making use of these programs?
2: Yeah, the idea of European integration definitely has changed how they politically perceive that they are or are not um, affected by uh, EU migration. But when you look at it more objectively, you can see that uh, most n- nation states already are quite well uh, sh- sheltered from uh, welfare migration. So. Uh, EU migrants uh, indeed can move freely between the EU member states and they can settle there and they can work there, but they cannot really access welfare state from day one. There's still this uh, period of three months that they have to wait and they cannot uh, use any type of welfare. And after that, it really depends on whether their status is EU worker or that they are seeking for a job or that they are simply inactive. And um, in this, yeah, after so after these three months, um, there is a lot of um, yeah. Let me rephrase. It is more important to see how long they are already in the country and whether they ever worked there. And based on these two principles, uh, EU member states are already very well aware to sh- yeah to prevent that people would move and directly access welfare benefits.
3: Something else that I found really interesting in your uh, study was your uh, life course approach because uh, migrants have different preferences over the course of their life. You have kids, you might have uh, different preferences. Uh, how did this life course uh, approach shed light on uh, on this, uh, on the choices migrants make uh, during your interviews?
2: Yeah, well, when we look at uh, migration theories, you can see that they're quite static. Uh, so you can uh, explain from them why, for instance, for you, maybe distance is more important since you attach more value to your family. Just give an example. And whereas I do not care much about that, so uh, I would be able to move a greater distance, for instance. So the model can be used to explain uh, why people attach a different value to certain factors. But it doesn't really explain why, for me, for instance... Uh, effects there could be now more important than in 10 years or the other way around. Whereas, like I just explained, over time my welfare needs will probably change. I don't have a child at the moment, so I don't really care about childcare. But if I would have a child uh, next year, I would uh, actually do mind about it. Uh, and the migration models do not really uh, are, are not very helpful in this because they are so static and they don't uh, allow for a clear time dimension. Now, the life course perspective actually helps with that and provides tools in the form of principles to explain uh, how these preferences of individuals will change over time.
3: And did you uh, find uh, did the interviews reflect this, or uh, did the respondents' uh, answers not reflect the uh, life course model?
2: Yeah, the life course model appeared very, very useful to, uh, to structure these interviews. And you could really clearly see that most people moved in a life stage where they were indeed young and didn't care about the welfare state so much yet. But while living in the Netherlands, their life stage sometimes changed. They got married, they had children, sometimes they lost a job or they came closer to their retirement age. And all these changes in their life course really made them realize that their needs were now different from when they migrated as a young student, and that their next migration decision would actually be, uh, yeah, would actually include these different uh, welfare-related factors more. Uh, and another example of where you could see the use of this welfare of this life course uh, perspective is that. Um, the life course perspective also explains that migration decisions are formed by the context in which they are made. So someone moving first from Poland to the Netherlands may not care so much about the welfare states. Because in Poland there uh, there was not so much as generous uh, welfare arrangements, so they didn't really care to give that up. But after moving to the Netherlands, they could see that yeah, some of these welfare arrangements were actually... Uh, quite useful and would make a difference in their next migration decision
3: Uh, so uh, you interviewed people from poland the uk and uh, uh, spain do you think that uh, the response would have then differed if uh, you looked at maybe respondents from sweden or countries with more generous welfare states
2: um yeah it is always difficult of course to to think about how it would differ uh, in the in the study that I conducted, I was mainly interested in the dynamics, so how people perceive the welfare state and how it influences their welfare, uh, their migration decisions. And in this, I would say that it, I didn't see that big a difference between the respondents from the UK versus those from Spain or Poland. It's also funny that you say countries with more generous uh, welfare system because sometimes people from Spain or Poland would even argue that things were arranged better in Poland or Spain than in the Netherlands. So it is also, the way we think about it may not always make sense that much. And we feel in the Netherlands that we have a great welfare state, but maybe uh, people from other countries would actually disagree about this. So I think it would be very interesting to see how they, how respondents from even yet different welfare states would would respond in, and how they would reflect on it. But I I don't think that all of a sudden it would would appear that the welfare state was a main motivator for the migration decision.
4: It's interesting um, when you were speaking about the life course approach. It sounded like migrants would would often come for one reason and they would stay for another reason or they would come uh, motivated by something and then they would be staying motivated by something else you also found evidence i think in your study that a lot of migrants i think it was a fifth of poles and a third of bulgarians were leaving the netherlands actually within a year so they would come for one reason and then they would actually leave to what extent is temporary migration uh, happening and, and do we need to incorporate that as well
2: Yeah, definitely, that would be one of my main recommendations for future research. Um, return migration is actually very large. Uh, We often think about immigration and how much people are coming and that they're all living here, but actually a very large uh, share of migrants, especially European migrants, is living within the first couple of years. We already saw this for a longer period of time for, for instance, people from traditional EU member states like Germany and the UK. And what is interesting is that when uh, Bulgaria and Poland joined the EU, um, this migration pattern actually changed as well. So in the past, people from Poland and Bulgaria to the Netherlands would actually stay much longer. But when they entered the EU and it became easier to move in and out, this more temporary forms of migration became much more prevalent.
1: In your interviews, did you find people that were older? Did they talk more about how good the pension system was or how important the healthcare system was in in the country where they had moved
2: yeah 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 i see what you mean um yeah so if people got closer to pension age they were more often aware that they would want they needed so they looked more into it Uh, But what is interesting to know is that uh, also in this case, people then often moved when they were still young. So they never really looked into the pension system in their origin country because they were still young back then. So they couldn't still not really compare the welfare states. And this is something that is quite important for research on the welfare state. um, Because we have the feeling that people can overlook a very broad field and then in different countries really know how everything is organized there. But in reality, people typically know most about the country where they are at that time and where they, yeah, where they spend most of their lives and where they had most encounters with the welfare state. So even people who moved were not really, often not really uh, able to to compare the um, the certain welfare benefits between the origin and the destination country because they only experienced it in one
3: place. Yeah, w- one thing that sort of doesn't make sense to me is that. Uh, Uh, As someone who's nearing pension age, you move to a country with uh, more generous pensions, because I feel like you probably don't have uh, built up the necessary contributions to be eligible for uh, pensions in that country, right?
2: Yeah, that's true. So that's also something important. Uh, Yeah, pensions is a bit of a tricky welfare arrangements, because you could look at where the, the pensions are the highest, but that would actually mean that you would already spend most of your working life in that country to be eligible for these higher pensions. Now in the study where I looked at old age benefits, this included not only pensions, but also health care facilities specifically for older people uh, or someone who comes at your house and helps you when you're older. So it's not just pensions. But yeah, it is true that uh, there's another reason why uh, these spending measures are uh, quite difficult to interpret in terms of what they mean for individuals. Uh, higher government spending on something doesn't mean that if you move to these countries as a migrant you will actually benefit from it.
4: Yeah because there there could also be a case to be made um, at least if we're thinking about retirement and, and pensions and sort of old age care that uh, con- countries that have maybe the most elaborate pension systems might not actually be the best places to grow old. And something I'm thinking of is um, the importance of family networks or social networks in in domestic care and in and in care for family members in places where these systems might be a little bit, bit weaker. Did did you kind of find through through interviews, or or do you think that that social considerations might start to also be, become important and actually be a reason to to leave or to seek out closer family ties?
2: Yeah, definitely. In many countries, of course, still a lot of care facilities are organized in the, or care tasks are provided within the family. Uh, this uh, certainly holds true for old age care, so in, uh, in Spain or Portugal there's little uh, elderly facilities so people mainly solve these tasks within the family, but also uh, certainly for childcare. So many people uh, rely on their parents, for instance, to to look after the child when they're at work. And during the interviews, you could really see this as well. So some people would say, yeah, if I have another child, I will probably move back to the origin country because it will be simply too expensive to arrange all this care uh, formally in the Netherlands. Uh, And also the other way around. So sometimes people move to the Netherlands um, to find work or to be with their partner. Uh, but they would already reflect um, on the future in which their parents would grow old in the destination country and would actually need them to be around because their mother in Spain would otherwise not have someone who would look after her. And this could actually be a reason to move back. So there's also this other side about uh, the welfare state and migration that we often do not think about.
4: Are are migrants also joining the workforce as domestic carers? I know there's a... a sub body of literature in um, in migration studies that looks at sort of the gendered impacts of migration and how as women um, in certain countries in the global north are entering the workforce actually they're being replaced by women from the global south who are then leaving behind their families i think most of this literature takes sort of a broader scope but do we see any of that in within the eu i mean are, are migrants also coming to to take care of us so to speak
2: we know for a couple of countries that this happens. People from Spain, for instance, but also from Eastern Europe. People are moving to yeah to take these care uh, kind of jobs. Uh, and yeah, I should say this leaves another problem in their origin country. Of course, they also have family members that actually need their, their support and their care. So it shifts the problem a bit. Uh, now the welfare state is sometimes... In uh, Western Europe, getting more more expensive, or uh, the government doesn't provide that much care anymore. We bring in formal care workers from different countries, but yeah, in these uh, origin countries, of course, they they leave a gap as well.
1: I think that's especially important in Southern Europe, precisely where you have a lot of these. A lot of the care was assured within these family networks. And as more women uh, enter the workforce, as this family network social loosen, but the state doesn't step in to, to, to ensure that level of care is increasingly ensured by indeed, especially female migrant workers from the Philippines or from Eastern Europe who actually take care of people in the home. So that's, I, I know that's very important in Italy, for instance, or Southern European countries where you don't have such a, such a role of the state in, in ensuring this kind of tasks.
3: Many people from uh, Eastern Central Europe have also moved to the UK uh, after enlargement, and uh, the UK got a lot more Eastern European and Central European migrants. But the UK's welfare state is not particularly generous. Uh, so why did people move to the UK at that point?
2: Yeah, that's a good question as well. Um, it is yeah. There's quite a large explanation actually. After the EU enlargements, uh, a lot of countries. Uh, feared actually large influx of uh, migration from the new member states. So the EU made it possible to place restrictions on the labor markets for yeah, a certain amount of time, maximally seven years, but also less was possible. And almost all EU, old EU member states did that, except for two, Sweden and the UK, these were the only countries that didn't place such restrictions on the labor market, so uh, mem- migration from the new members, migrants from the new member states, could move there directly without needing uh, a certain job certificates or uh, employment
1: contracts. Ireland as well, right? Ireland as well, I think. and Ireland. Yeah.
2: Okay, so um, yeah, this makes it, of course, made it, uh, of course, a much more attractive option for these migrants to move to.
3: I don't think Sweden has had uh, such a large influx of uh, labor migrants or migrants from uh, Central Europe and Eastern Europe after enlargement.
1: In spite of having one of the most generous welfare states in yes. the EU, so that really goes in the direction of the general yeah. summary of your findings.
2: Exactly, yeah. So this is quite yeah a, an often-used argument why this welfare magnet hypothesis makes no sense in this European context. However, it never really... Um, persuaded seem to have persuaded everyone because some people argue that uh, the uk actually still has an attracting attractive welfare state for migrants since it's very uh, much non-contributory whereas in yeah in many other eu member states you still have to contribute first before you can get access to benefits uh, the UK may not have the most generous welfare state, but the benefits that are there are mainly non-contributory, which makes it more easy for migrants to, to access them. Uh, however, several calculations on this uh, impact, the economic impact of these migrants from the new member states show that they overall contributed much more to the economy than they used in, in terms of be- uh, welfare benefits. And later on, it was even used by some scholars to say, Yes, see, we should also have uh, just provided uh, access to the labour market straight away. It would have boosted the economy much more.
1: So there is this element that the, the UK has got a number of welfare schemes that are not contributory in nature, in nature. But isn't there also an argument for saying that actually, if you have a smaller welfare state and you have a more, uh, a more liberal labour market, where it's also easier to find low-wage jobs... Isn't it going to be that that's going to be that can act as a magnet for immigration rather than uh, a super generous welfare state like in Sweden, but you have also very, very high taxes where the low wage labor market is actually pretty small because you have such a high reservation wage. So isn't there an argument for saying that it's actually not a generous welfare state that acts as a magnet, but rather a quite stingy welfare state that creates lots of that makes it possible to have lots of low wage jobs?
2: Yeah, exactly. So that's probably why many people move to the UK as well. We know from Sweden, indeed, that it's much more difficult for migrants to find their place in the labor markets uh, despite a higher welfare system, which, again, cannot be directly accessed by EU migrants before they
4: actually have
2: found a job uh, in this country. Yeah.
4: Although, although I guess, again, that explanation would... In- imply kind of, again, the sort of cost benefit analysis type calculation that maybe maybe isn't happening or, or that absolute rationality of decision, which might not actually be the, be the driving force behind mm. migration in the first place.
1: I mean, that's really the added value of your life course approach, because the, the economic analysis that we mentioned at the very beginning, when you have this one model of a homo economicus who makes this cost benefit analysis independently of age, independent of culture, whose main interest is to maximize their income, the human being is actually a lot more complex, which is shaped by different preferences, different priorities that evolve over the course of their life. Yeah,
2: exactly. And I think we should not step away completely from the the rational choice model. uh, Because people actually do make kind of rational choices when they decide whether they will migrate and where they will go to. But they do it much more on short term. So they will look at what they need now and what they need maybe in two years, but not much further from that. Whereas these economic models assume that people are just planning their whole life ahead and then feel like, oh, well, if I will uh, move now, I can live there for 60 years and then I will be best off there. But people in practice do not do that. So they just think about what do I need today? What do I need tomorrow? And maybe what do I do? What do do I need uh, the day after that? But yeah, much further, they don't think. Uh, and especially within the European Union maybe this may still be a bit more true for people that actually move very large differences intercontinentally for instance but people who move within the EU they don't perceive it as uh, a lifelong uh, yeah decision they can always go back when things really don't work out
4: i think the the sweden example is also interesting because it shows how the data on uh, migration flows is actually not directly influencing uh, policy or political opinion. I mean, the, the, the Swedish Sverigedemokraterna, uh, the far right, is still invoking this idea of welfare chauvinism and this idea that the Swedish folkhem, or people's home, is being threatened by migrants in order to win votes. So um, you know, to, to what extent do you think that these types of scientific findings can can feed into public policy and and feed into political discourse
2: yeah i think these findings can help to to put right the yeah and actually misperception of the the idea that the welfare state is actually a motivator of migration uh, and also the the related policy changes that are proposed uh, due to it so and based on my research i would say well we do not really need the policy change that makes it's more difficult for EU migrants to enter the Dutch welfare system, because yeah, A, they didn't really come for it, and B, they already cannot uh, access it that easily. Uh, so we could better focus our attention and political strategies on different aspects that, for instance, help people from a different nationality to integrate better into the Dutch labour market.
3: Could this or not differ for different types of migrants? Uh, thus far, I think the discussion is centered largely on EU migrants. Uh, would this uh, decision to move to an EU, uh, an EU country differ for uh, a non-EU citizen? Would welfare play a larger or a smaller role? What do you think about that?
2: Yeah, I think it definitely uh, involves different mechanisms. Uh, something that I'm often asked about are asylum seekers. Of course, this was also something that that got a lot of attention over the years that I was working on this uh, PhD. Uh, and I would always say, yeah, I have to disappoint you a bit because I, I don't know, I didn't study the asylum seekers and they are such a different group because they moved for different reasons. They uh, could or could not select their destination country themselves and how they are perceived or uh, treated in the country that they, uh, that they arrive is so different from people that uh, themselves decided to move to, towards another EU country. Uh, so I would definitely recommend to to study that uh, on its own and and not try to, yeah, t- to to use these findings uh, directly for this group. But yeah, it is an interesting group for
1: sure. There would be a case theoretically to assume that non-economic factors, and, and including the welfare state, might be a more important factor for asylum migration in the sense that the, the type of migration that you looked at intra-EU migration. I would assume is overwhelmingly labor migration so people are interested not necessarily in getting benefits but in getting jobs whereas for asylum seekers it's just by the nature of their status it's much more difficult to enter the labor market and and we talked about Sweden before I guess the the, the biggest amount of concern as far as I understand it in Sweden is is less Eastern European workers even if there is a bit of that but that's mostly asylum so so Is there potentially a burden there?
2: It is difficult to say because these people are indeed not allowed to to enter the labor market directly. So in the beginning, they will, out of necessity, have to rely on welfare benefits. And uh, in the long run, maybe they will uh, contribute actually to the economy. It is still too early to say something about that, I think. Uh, but what is also more difficult about this group is that they cannot always choose where they go to. So um, sometimes they end up somewhere because of, yeah, the smuggler took them there, or because uh, other um, dynamics during their journey. Um, and for this group, it is it will be even more difficult, I think, to grasp really how welfare states uh, in Europe work and how they uh, find their way in that. Uh, so it is indeed a, a very fascinating group to to keep an eye on over the next uh, years. I
4: would I would love to ask you Petra about the title of your of your PhD. I mean, uh, it's very catchy between welfare and farewell. Can you <laughs> can you talk a bit about where the where the farewell is? Is the farewell? Just referring to the homes that they leave behind, and how did you come up with this title? <laughs> yeah, this is an often asked question. People like the title. I like it. Well, as
2: well, I think it. I, it came to me when I was on holiday, and I thought, yeah, it's about welfare, but it's also about yeah, saying goodbye to, to your home country and the things that you leave behind there, also your social networks and the and a part of welfare that's there, in fact, as well. So um, yeah, it just seemed a perfect title.
4: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's um, the, wealth, the welfare is then the, the destination country, I, as I understand, although you also looked at the origin countries as well, welfare systems and origin countries. And then, and then the farewell is kind of, um, yeah, the, the origin country, and, and it's that bridge that we seem to not understand very well, but that in the context of European integration, we've kind of already started to make. I mean, um, a lot in intra-European migration, which is the focus of the study, uh, in theory, that, that farewell shouldn't shouldn't really be a farewell at least in a legal sense it's not if you're an EU migrant you're not really leaving behind the legal structure um, you're not leaving behind your right to a set of social rights in theory um, so yeah I, fi- I find it i find it an, a really interesting bridge that you're making in the in the context of, of a europe that's trying ever more to harmonize although i i don't think that europe has succeeded very much in harmonizing social policy right or, or maybe it has is, is there kind of a social policy
2: framework? yeah i think the european union tries to uh, yeah it, it wishes that every country can still decide for themselves how to organize social policy which makes it very difficult actually to really integrate it and it's also of course where many of these problems come from so because uh, each welfare system has its own rules and its own levels, um, these fears arise that people will really select strategically which welfare states are most profitable to them. Whereas if there would be one social policy for the whole union, yeah, these kind of problems may uh, may disappear. Hmm. That's interesting. It,
4: it also reminds me of. Um you know the idea of embedded liberalism after World War II that we would open we would open markets globally. I think this was John Ruggie's concept, but it would need to be embedded in sort of the social democracy. And it seems like in Europe we've gone sort of part of the way. I mean, economically, um, the borders have come down now, but but socially, yeah. You, I think you've pointed out something that's quite a, a contradiction of uh, integration, maybe, and that could offer a potential solution for some of the, the mismatches or the disjunctures that we're seeing.
1: There is one part of your research that we haven't really touched upon, and that's the survey experiment that you did with, uh, with, uh, with, in a more uh, experimental setting, uh, with, with, uh, within with university students. I think could you tell us a bit more about what you did and how it really tried to tap into the individual decision making of, of individuals in making migration decisions.
2: Yes, of course. Yeah, in this study, I used an experimental design to see which factors play a role in in the migration aspirations, so whether people are willing to move abroad or not among master students, by um, providing them with uh, hypothetical destination countries and then experimentally vary the yeah the characteristics of these destination countries to see how they reacted to that. And uh, one of the important findings I think of this is that um well higher welfare benefits made a destination country slightly more attractive but was what was more important to these dutch master students was that the benefit levels would not be lower than in the netherlands so it seems that people are not that willing to give up welfare rights that they have in the destination country now in, of course in the case of the netherlands we often perceive the benefit levels as quite high so this uh, rules out a lot of possible destination countries for these Dutch students, uh, if they only would be willing to move towards places where it is better. Uh, And this makes it also, yeah, this origin country uh, element, again, very, very important and very clear. Um, I also conducted, as I told before, uh, this uh, experiment in the Portuguese context. I I didn't describe it in the PhD thesis, but I will work on it as a follow-up. And there we can see this again, so also for the Portuguese students, it is much more important that benefit levels are not lower than in Portugal, than that they are higher than in Portugal, which is still interesting. So they are not really searching for a better welfare state, it's not really what they are after, it's not their main motivator for migration, but they don't want to uh, give up rights that they already have. Uh, of course, for the Portuguese students, that leaves a very different range of possible destination countries. So it is the yeah the role of the origin country becomes more and more clear to me as yeah, the main the main factors.
3: Are they also concerned with eligibility standards in different countries and how that differs, or did they mainly yeah. think about uh, benefit levels in that?
2: Well, based on this experiment, I can only say something about the benefit levels because these eligibility criteria I didn't include in it. It would be too complex, but it would be defi- definitely something that is interesting to look at. Uh, and But what I saw also in the Dutch case, uh, the welfare state seems to be important as some sort of protection mechanism. Uh, so people were more interested in places that had higher job opportunities, but even more so if it was combined with higher benefit levels. Uh, and then the main effect of these benefit levels was no longer significant. So yeah, it's a bit technically, but to explain this, you could say, well, it is not really the benefit level that they were after, but it is a nice a bonus uh, on top of better job opportunities. And the welfare state then is not so much a benefit in itself. So it is not really an alternative to income from paid labor, but it is more a protection mechanism against the the possibility that you might not find work and be dependent on a for benefits.
1: Because in that experiment you also related these decisions and these things that um, individuals consider important to particular psychological features that they might have. For instance, whether they're more uh, prone to take risks or whether they're more risk adverse. Could could you say a bit more how this relationship actually works?
2: Yeah, so this is also something that is more and more prevalent in migration studies. We do now realize that it's not just micro-level factors that shape migration decisions, but also more the psychological outlook someone has. And then it's often found that if people are less willing to enter unfamiliar situations, they are less willing to migrate for quite obvious reasons, because it's just really uncertain what you will encounter when you move across borders. And this made us think... In the, in the project that maybe these psychological traits may also have a moderating impact on the way the welfare state uh, shapes their migration aspirations. Because the welfare state obviously has an important role in protecting people against risks. So if you're not that willing to enter risks, but there is this institution that protects you, it may still be more feasible to you to, to enter these uh, risky situations. Mm-hmm. And this is also exactly what I found in the study. So people who indicated that they were less willing to enter risky situations uh, were indeed less willing to move abroad for shorter times, especially. Uh, but they would be more willing to move when the destination countries included a, a generous welfare state. So it seemed that this welfare state could, yeah, could ease their minds and could... Uh, yeah, could provide the conditions under which they would consider such a risky situation.
4: Do you think that across uh, other types of, uh, or other groups of migrants besides students, that would still, uh, where we would still have reason to find that as well?
2: Yeah, I would, I would even expect it to be stronger because master students overall are quite uh, likely to succeed abroad because they have good skills and they, yeah, they know how to handle these tricky and unfamiliar situations much better than people with lower levels of education um, so I could imagine that for people with, with other skill levels or in other stages of their lives this may even be more important
1: we've covered lots of ground we would like to thank you very much for for, your, for a really super interesting discussion yeah, and so. uh, a
0: really interesting
3: thesis
1: and good luck with your future research
0: You can find Petra de Jonge's PhD Between Welfare and Farewell on our website, BordersEquality.org. And you can also find our podcasts here on the website or on Spotify or SoundCloud or any other type of media platform that you use to listen to your podcasts. Uh, That's the roundup for this episode for this week, our very second episode. Thank you very much.